And today I want us to dive into the book of Acts. We've been studying the great sermons of Acts, the, the messages that were preached to a world that was just hearing the gospel for the first time. What a powerful thing. We're about to see a transition in, in, in a little bit, not, not this week, but in a little bit we'll see the transition from the gospel being preached to mainly a Jewish audience to it transitioning to also a Gentile audience. And you'll notice in the way they preach, because when they're preaching to the Jewish audience, they're going to assume you already know the Old Testament scriptures. They're going to assume that you know uh, uh, Moses. They're going to assume you know the prophets, you know the law, you know the Psalms. But as we move on, and he begins to preach, these, these apostles begin to preach to the Gentiles, some of the messages change a bit, some of the emphasis changes a bit. But the focus, no matter where you are in the book of Acts, is on Jesus. Focuses on him. The resurrected Savior, amen, the, the Messiah, the resurrected King, the glorified Savior, this is who he is. So I want to read to you from Acts, and we're going to start in chapter 6. Now, here we go. Out of all of the sermons in the book of Acts, this is the longest one. So buckle up, all right? And it can be one of the most confusing. I was thinking back just, you know, this past week. I was thinking about how many, how many sermons have I heard preached out of this message, out of Stephen's sermon. And I couldn't think of too many. Be now, it's not because it, it's not good, and it's not because people don't want to preach out of it, but it's, it, if you don't really get what he's talking about, it almost seems like he's rambling. Like he's just telling history, like your grandpa has been up too late, and he's just started talking about all the stories, and they meld into one. But it's not a ramble at all. In fact, it's a very clear, specific case that he's making, and a, an appeal he's making to these religious leaders that they would be saved. You know, we've read a couple of times in the book of Acts already in these sermons where people were cut to the quick or pierced to the heart. We're about to see it again. But in past, in past readings, as, as, as when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, and they were pierced to the heart, they repented. Unfortunately, if you know the end of this story, it doesn't end so well. A man's going to die at the end of this sermon. Like, not this one, but <laughs> I hope, I hope not. Really pulling for that not to be the case today. But the one we're reading, someone's going to die at the end of it. And it was worth preaching. How many messages do you have in your own heart that are worth dying for? What do you carry that's worth dying for? It matters because uh, it's really the, the gospel we're meant to be preached. Whether you live or die, it's meant to be the the message that's worth giving your life for. You know, as anybody that's married in the room knows that the Bible tells you, well, even if you're not married, you know the Bible tells you this, that husband is meant to lay his life down for his wife as Christ laid his life down for the church. It's very easy for a, a new husband to say, baby, I'd die for you. I'd take a bullet for you, baby. I would, I would die for you. You know, it, right? Because, yeah, it's a hypothetical, number one. And number two, bullets are quick. But you know what's a little harder is laying your life every day down for that person. Laying your life down and saying, this life is not about me. This marriage isn't about me. It's about, it's about laying my life down for you and you laying your life down for me and all of us laying our life down for Jesus. And so a lot of times we think of uh, giving your life for the gospel, we think of it in context of would I die for this gospel. The, the, the real thing that God's after is will you live for this gospel? Will you lay your life down for the gospel? If you can't live for the gospel now, what makes you think you'd die for it? Right? We all imagine this hypothetical, uh, you know, and, and maybe your youth group did this. There was a trend when I was young. Our youth group never did it, thank God. But there was a trend where somebody would pretend, and the youth leader would set it up and somehow thought this was a good idea, and it probably didn't clear it with church leadership. But these youth leaders it went around in a few churches where they would have somebody come in and, and totally freak the youth group out. Make them think that somebody was actually holding them up with a gun and saying, Will you deny Jesus? Will you deny Jesus? Deny Jesus or I'll kill you. This happened in churches, friends. <laughs> Did it happen in your church? Wow, okay. All right. <laughs> so, you know, the ultimate test. Do the teenagers say, yes, I'll die, or do they freak out and split to the 7-Eleven? That's the question. But um, 
I came to know that if I would surrender my life to Jesus, it's not how tightly I can hold on to him, it's how he can hold on to me. If I give my life to Jesus right now and live for him right now, if I ever came to the day where I was tested with that, it'd be, he, it'd be him that would hold me. It'd be him that give me the strength to stand in that moment. And I believe that for any of you, whether you consider yourself a weak person or a strong person, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Somebody dies at the end of this sermon. In, in this one, in this one. In Acts chapter 6, the church had exploded by thousands. In Acts chapter 4, we left off last week with them, well, actually a couple weeks ago, with them praying, God, give us boldness. God, give us boldness. God, do signs and wonders, do miracles through us and through your servant Jesus. And the response of God was to fill them with the Holy Spirit. And one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit says great grace was upon them all. Now, they, these guys had all been filled with the Spirit previously, but they needed to be full again. Amen? So you know this is not a one-time thing. you got to stay full of the Holy Spirit. And if you feel lacking, it's, it's good to ask. And so they did. But one of the great uh, uh, um, results of them being filled with the Spirit, and the Bible says great grace was on them all, and the way you knew that grace, grace was on them all was not just that they were preaching with boldness, but there was a radical move of generosity. They began giving even more than they had already to everyone that had need. And the Bible says there was not one needy person among them, for they held everything in common. If anybody had a need, uh, somebody sold some land, somebody made it happen so that the needs were met. This in the, in the book of Acts was seen as a proof of the grace of God, that the Holy Spirit was doing this. Anytime you ever see in, in history when humans try to eradicate poverty, it's never worked. We've never been able to do it. Maybe, we, maybe we've alleviated it somewhat. Maybe we've helped it somewhat. But no matter whether it's, it's communism or capitalism or any sort of thing in between or outside of it, nobody's ever solved the problem. Because humans can solve that problem. Doesn't mean you shouldn't give. Doesn't mean you shouldn't be generous. But humans can't totally fix that problem. But the Holy Spirit did. Because it was a move of God. And, and, and because it was a move of God, God did something that humans couldn't do. Which was really cool. But one of the results was, was that they were taking care of the widows. And, and in, their, in their society, widows didn't have the safety net that you might have right now. If you're a widow, you, you likely couldn't go get a job. You, you, your husband's dead, you, your breadwinner's gone. Not only that, but there wasn't government assistance for you. A lot of them were, were put into a, a place, if, if they didn't have a family member to take care of them, they became destitute. And so the church began taking care of these people. And it was a great move of God. The widows were being taken care of. The orphans were being taken care of. But uh, uh, the, the main core of the church, the apostles, were all Hebrew-speaking Jews. They were all part of the Hebrew synagogues, right? They spoke Hebrew. They read a Hebrew Bible. However, a big chunk of the people that just got saved were Greek-speaking Jews. Now, the Greek-speaking Jews had become uh, Hellenized, as we call it, or, or Greekicized, if you want to say it weird. Um, they, they become kind of more Greek throughout the past few hundred years because the Greeks before the Romans had taken over Judea. Alexander the Great came, and then later the, the Seleucid Empire, all of these uh, different rulers. So they brought Greek culture, and parts of Judea were very Greek. Parts of these Jewish synagogues were very Greek. And so there was a whole chunk of the church that didn't go to church with the rest of them. They went to their church, which spoke Greek, their synagogue. So they would gather together as the church, as the body of believers, but then, you know, on Sabbath, they'd go to their own synagogues, and, and, and that was their cultural setting. That was the group that they hung out with, and so what happened was their widows were not being fed as fairly as the Hebrew widows because they weren't known as well. You know, sometimes we don't have bad intentions, but we have our own built-in biases, right? We got our built-in ways. Uh, you tend to look after the people you know. You tend to relate to the people you can relate to. And so this is what was happening. And, and they brought this to the apostles. They said, listen, uh, the Greek-speaking widows are not being fed fairly. The, 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 the uh, generosity is great, but it's not being evenly divided here. And so the apostles said, you know, this isn't really what we're called to do. We should be devoting ourselves to the word and prayer. And they said, pick seven men from among your group, the Greek-speaking Jews, 
and have them oversee this work of, of feeding the widows and taking care of these families. And he said, here's the qualifications. He doesn't say pick seven businessmen. He doesn't say pick seven really smart dudes. He says pick seven people full of the spirit and wisdom. Yeah. Amen. That's the qualification for a deacon. You don't just pick your seven best businessmen or businesswomen. You pick seven people full of the spirit and God's wisdom. Those are the kind of people that are going to get it done. So they did. One of these men was Stephen. And Stephen is not only doing a great job making sure the widows are fed, but he's going back to his Greek-speaking synagogue, and he's telling people, we found the Messiah. Well, this turns some heads, and obviously he's, he's winning people over, and some people get angry. Here's what happens at the end of Acts chapter 6. It says in verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. How many of you know Stephen is not an apostle? So if you've ever had someone tell you, oh, the, the signs and the wonders in the book of Acts were just the apostles, wrong. Not only do you have Stephen, you have Philip, and I can name others. But Stephen here, not an apostle, but a believer full of the Spirit, is seeing signs and wonders take place as he, by the hand of God as he preaches the, uh, uh, the gospel. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those of Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. For them, Moses is right up there with God, right? <laughs> Moses and God. You pick which one's worse. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came up upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus of Nazareth, will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. It was glowing. And the high priest said, are these things so? And at that question, Stephen is at a fork in the road, friends. Do I want to get out of this alive? Remember, these are false witnesses. They're lying. All he's got to say is, no, that's not true. I, I love Moses. I have Moses' jersey at home. I love him. I know all his hits. His, his original top ten. I know him. Right? Like, I, I am a fan. At the temple, beautiful. Ah, I love it. Probably better than Solomon's. Should I say that? It's, it's amazing. Right? Like he could have got out of this. But the message he's about to preach is not a message of self-defense. Remember Jesus said, when they arrest you and put you in front of their courts, make up your minds beforehand not to defend yourself. Not to prepare a defense for yourself. For in that hour, I'll give you the words you're going to say. And they won't be your words. It'll be the words of your father. And he says this, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. Stephen is about to use this moment to say exactly what the Holy Spirit wants to say. And it will cost him his life, and it will be worth it. This sermon is probably the most important sermon, one of the most that's preached in the entire book of Acts. This sermon is probably the reason that you have a big chunk of your New Testament right now. Out of the 27 books in the New Testament, 14 of them were written by the Apostle Paul. More are influenced by Paul. And the Apostle Paul, amongst his Hebrew brethren, was known by his Hebrew name, Shaul, Saul. We only know him later as Paul, not because his name got changed, because his name was always Paulus amongst the Gentiles. He, lived in a, he came from a town that had Jews and Gentiles. Amongst the Gentiles, he was Paulus. Amongst the Hebrews, he was Shaul. The reason you see it in your Bible that he starts as Saul of Tarsus and becomes Paul later is because his ministry goes to the Gentiles. There's never a moment where God changes his name. Now, I know I probably stole a great sermon from you, but uh, I think if God were going to change his name, he might not call him little man, which is what his name meant. <laughs> hey, Pee-wee, this is my name for you. When I renamed Yaakov, I renamed Jacob Israel. What a great moment. I renamed all these people. But you, I renamed Abram, Abraham, father of many nations. But you, I'm going to call you little dude. Little dude. 
Short stuff. No, I mean, this is just his Gentile name. So still, amongst the Hebrews, probably to the day he died, they knew him as Saul, and amongst the Gentiles, they knew him as Paul. But Saul of Tarsus started out as a very zealous Pharisee. And the way, he tells us later in his, in his epistles, his letters, that the way he proved how zealous he was for God, how excited he was for God, was by persecuting Christians. And it all starts with this sermon. Later in Paul's life, he says this. When Jesus knocked me down on the road, he asked me, why are you persecuting me? I said, Lord, who are you? And Jesus said, it's me, Jesus. And he said, Jesus told me it's been hard for you to kick against the goads. What is a goad? It's, it's a, something that, a sharp thing that you'd poke an animal with to get them moving. You ever moved cattle? You try the tail trick? Anybody tried the tail trick? You give them a little twist and you move them. The bulls, you know, just give them a little bulls. But if you don't, you give them a stick. Nobody's ever let me use the cattle prod with the electric thing. <laughs> didn't trust me with it. I don't know why. I got the pokey thing. I got the tail trick. I didn't get anything else. But when you move a stubborn animal, maybe you got to poke them a little bit. Jesus said to Paul, it's been hard for you to kick against my poking. And that poking started right here with this sermon. This one's a big one. It's this sermon that launches, uh, the, it really, it, the great persecution began with this sermon, which began the great evangelism all over the empire. Here's how Stephen defends himself. He doesn't defend himself at all. Here's what he says. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I'll show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land that you're now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, says God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them a covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob the 12 patriarchs. Now, once again, it's going to seem like he's just telling them stuff they already know. But they've accused him of two things. Blaspheming the law and Moses. Or sorry, not, not, not Moses so far. Yeah, blaspheming Moses and blaspheming the holy place. So he's going to say these, these, these things. As you, as you begin to notice a theme, one of the themes that he begins to focus on is this idea that God just lives in the temple. That God can be constricted to one place. Now, God's the one that told them to build a temple. The temple was a good idea. God did fill that place with his presence. But see, they've begun, they become to hold the temple up higher than the one that lives in it. The house is more important than the inhabitant to them. Because what religion will do, when, when you remove God out of religion, when you remove his presence out of religion, when you relieve, remove surrender and relationship with God out of the equation, all you've got is a, is a construct. All you've got is a system. And if you make your living on a system, if anybody threatens that system, they're threatening you. See, Jesus came along and threatened their system because their system no longer resembled what he had set up. He told them, in vain you worship me. Useless. Your worship has been useless because you've been teaching as doctrine the traditions of men. He says, your traditions have nullified the word of God. There's nothing wrong with good tradition, right? Godly tradition. But godly tradition in its own self, good tradition in itself, without a purpose, without the presence, has nothing. It's, it, it's lifeless. If you just say, well, why do we do church this way? Or why, why do we do this? Or why do we do that? Well, because granddad did it. Is there life in that? I always did it this way. This is the way we thought, and it loses its meaning. It may have had great meaning to your grandfather, to your grandmother. Maybe they did it because God instructed them to do it. Maybe they did it because they saw it in the Word. But if you're just doing it because they did it, something's been lost. 
And by the time Jesus came along, there were more commandments that came from people than came from God. They became so addicted to it that every commandment God gave had pages upon pages of extra thing that people added. So if you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath, they've now turned that into you can't even spit like Jesus did into the, into the mud because now you're creating clay, which is the first step to creating bricks. Sounds like you're doing what we were told not to do, which is what they did when they were slaves, make bricks. Right? Religion without God. Somebody once said religion is what happens when God leaves the room. Although James tells us there's a good religion. God is in it. So Stephen is, is, is pointing some things out, and I want you to see his early thought here. Our fathers didn't live here. Our fathers wandered. Our fathers came into this land and weren't even able to set up a city, weren't able to build houses. Abraham lived in tents. They lived as strangers, and somehow God was with them. How was God with them if he didn't have a fancy temple? Where did God live? He lived amongst his people. He goes on and he says, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him, and he rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers out on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Joseph went down into Egypt, or Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, and he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem, and they were laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for him for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. In other words, God was with us there, and then God was with us in Egypt. And Jacob went down, and sorry, sorry, but at the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who didn't know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in the, his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man. And he avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't understand. Remember, Stephen is being accused of coming against Moses. He's about to tell you our pattern, our, our culture is to come against the ones God sends to them. Every time God sends somebody to give us deliverance, we kill this person and we try. Stephen is holding a mirror up and going, do you notice what's happening right now? You guys think you love Moses, you would have tried to kill him. You think you like Isaiah, you would have tried to kill Isaiah. You think you love all these prophets, you would have persecuted the prophets, and you're doing it right now. You think I'm blaspheming the temple, do you know that God has always been with us wherever we went? He says this. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, your brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. Somehow, God was able to appear without a fancy temple. All he needed was a fancy bush that wasn't that fancy. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers. I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. What place? Some desert? Some mountain in the middle of nowhere? Certainly not the temple. 
Certainly not Jerusalem. But by himself, in, in what seemed like a God-forsaken place, God shows up. Not only does God show up and God speak, but God says, take your shoes off. This is a holy place. Friends, wherever God is, is a holy place. And God is amongst his people. Now we know that God instituted a tabernacle. He instituted a temple. That was God's idea. But the Bible tells us that now in new covenant, we are the temple of the most high God. We are the place that he lives. We are the living stones that build a house in which a spiritual priesthood offers spiritual sacrifices made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If we were to go and have church in Bud Miller right now, God would be there. We would be the temple, a mobile temple. So that's why sometimes we do have church outside or over here. So that you can see that, thank God for this building. I love it. I'm thankful for it. But it is just material. That's all it is. Here he goes on and he says this. Remember, Stephen, <laughs> Stephen's like telling them history to the to people that are experts in it. Which tells us that sometimes you can know the scripture and never have it penetrate your heart. You can be experts in the law. You can be experts in the gospel. You can be experts in every scripture you should know and still have it not change your heart. He said, take off your sandals. It's the place you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning. I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Ruler and redeemer sounds a lot like what Peter called Jesus, prince and savior. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And the Bible tells us that verse was talking about Jesus. This is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. With our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him. They thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. And as for Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. He's probably dead. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol they were worshiping. They were uh, to the idol, and they were rejoicing in what? The works of their hands. What's the temple? What's the temple of Herod? Sure, it's a holy place. Sure, it's a place that the worship of God took place. Why are they so offended? Because this is the work of their hands. This is something they can see, they can touch. They can say, this is where God is. And you feel comfortable with it because when you have no living spirit, when the spirit of God does not dwell within you, all you've got is what you can see with your eyes. So if someone takes that away from you, they've taken everything. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you know, you know, this is what happens. The people that are born of the Spirit, they're like the wind. You don't see them. You don't know where they're coming from. You don't know where they're going. How frustrating must it be when someone says, this is where God is moving, and you can't see it because you need something physical. You need something that you can see, touch, hear, smell. You have to be led by your five physical senses rather than by the Spirit, rather than by a living word of God. You see, Stephen's not throwing his Bible away. He's spending his whole sermon speaking from it. But when he speaks it, it's alive. Because he's a believer full of the Spirit. When you read your Bible, it should be alive. When you, when you quote these scriptures, it shouldn't be just a nice little quote like Yogi Berra said something. This is, this is the living word of God. It's active. It's alive. It's God speaking right now. It has power. They rejoiced in the works of their hands, but God turned away and gave them over to the worship, the host of heaven, as it is written in the books of the prophet. Did you bring me to slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, oh my goodness, the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, so I'll send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, 
just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that they'd seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua as when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. In other words, we used a tent. God built it. God gave us the instructions for it, but it was a tent until David finally said, why are you still in a tent, Lord? I'm in a fancy house. Why are you in a tent? So David asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High, listen to this, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my home. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what, what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people. Uh-oh. Stephen, you want to get out of here alive? Tone it down. Chill, man. You stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart. Remember he brought up the circumcision as being a proof of the covenant. This was what made you covenant people was the circumcision. This was the sign of the covenant that he gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all the brothers. This was the sign, was the circumcision. Now he's saying, guys, you may have it physically, but you don't have it where it matters. Your heart is uncircumcised. Your necks are stiff. You won't turn. You won't turn when God says, look over here. You won't move when he says, move this way. Like a stiff-necked horse, you're stuck in one direction. You're uncircumcised in heart and ears. Did you know you can have covenant ears? Now, please don't go home and start carving your ears. <laughs> what are you doing? I'm circumcising my ears. Like, please don't do that. Don't do that. But this means that somehow God changes the way you hear. Somehow he changes the way you hear. Like you're able to hear and not be stubborn. He breaks the pride that's been keeping us from his grace. Here's the wonderful thing. He says, you are uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Name me one. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered. Once again, Stephen taking on the tradition of Peter and pointing a finger right at him and going, you murdered the Messiah, the one you say you've been waiting for, the one you taught your kids songs about, the one you've got on your wall, we will someday see the Messiah. You murdered him. He says, who received the law, you who received the law is delivered by angels and didn't even keep it. Why is Stephen laying it out like this? Why is Stephen being so hard? Do you know this is the mercy of God? These men have heard the gospel more than once. We've, we saw it ourselves. Pride will keep you from grace. It's the only thing that can. It's your own pride. The Bible says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And he says it. Lots of times in the Bible. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So pride will keep us from grace. If you ever think about what grace really looks like in a life, think about what it means to be opposed by God. Can anybody here do anything if God's opposing you? Can you ever succeed if God was opposing you? Maybe temporarily you'd look like you were. But as the Psalms say, Surely you've been set in a slippery place and you will fall, right? The wicked will perish. So, so if God is opposing you, think about riding a bicycle against the wind and then multiply that by infinity. <laughs> if God is opposing you, how hard is that? So if that's what it looks like to be opposed by God, what does he say the opposite of it is? He gives grace to the humble. So what does grace look like in your life? I think it's the opposite of God opposing you. Right? It's God's strength for your weakness. It's his favor for, for our, our uh, where we've been uh, uh, disobedient and unworthy. What Jesus did for us turned it all around. Somehow, the humility opens the doorway to grace. And these men are so proud, so arrogant, so stuck, that it's not going to take a nice, simple, you know, God's got good plans for you message. They've heard it. They've heard the gospel five different ways. They were the ones that killed Jesus. 
It's going to take somebody being very, very honest with them. And he's very, very loving, but very, very honest. Because nothing else has broke through to them. And you may say, well, it doesn't seem to do much good. Absolutely it did. We have our New Testament as we know it because one of those guys was so bothered, so bothered that he kicked against the goads by persecuting the church. He kicked against God by, by killing Christians, but eventually he bowed his knee. He didn't keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth, they gnashed their teeth at him. Have, have any of you been so mad that you gnashed your teeth at somebody? I've no, I can't remember ever doing that. I can't remember being that mad that I was just like... <sighs> They were that mad. They gnashed their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit. How many of you know that the anger of the people around you, people not loving you, people not liking you, people hating you for what you believe, that doesn't have to change who you are. It doesn't have to take you out of the Spirit. It doesn't take you out of, out of the love of God. It doesn't take you out of his, his, his grace. You don't have to be reacting to them. We always react to Jesus. We never react to them. We react to God. And so he, being full of the Spirit, who did he look at? He didn't look at the haters. He didn't look at the people trying to kill him. He gazed into heaven. And he saw the glory of God. Guys, this, this, is, this is the most intense thing he's probably ever gone through in his life. All you would, all you would in the natural, all you would see are all these people that are trying to kill you. But instead, he chooses, what am I going to look at right now? And every single one of us has to choose, what are we going to look at right now? Right at this moment in history, 2022, Canada, right now, what are we looking at? Because if you're looking around you at all, oh, these people disagree, these people hate me, these people want me dead, these people, you know, then you will react to what you're looking at. You'll always react to what you're beholding. I'm not talking about being unaware, blissfully naive. No, no, you know, the Bible says don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. The, the early church told God, take note of their threats. But that's what they did. They took the threats and gave them to God. They just keep them. What's our plan for these threats? They said, Lord, what's your plan? Full of the Holy Spirit. They gazed into heaven. They saw the glory of God and Jesus. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Friends, every other time the New Testament talks about Jesus at the right hand of God, he is seated. He's seated because as the high priest, his work is done. So he's seated because that's a place of rule and authority. A king doesn't stand and rule. A king sits on a throne and rules. The Bible says he's seated until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. So why is Jesus standing right now? i got to believe, and this is just my own speculation, but this is Jesus giving a standing ovation to Stephen. This is Jesus welcoming Stephen. Well done, son. Well done, son. You did what you are supposed to do. And we all think, no, if I did what I was supposed to do, I wouldn't die. But Stephen is known by the early church as the first martyr. Martyr is the word for witness. Well, he wasn't the first to witness to the resurrection. Peter did it. James, John, all the apostles. So why is he known as the first witness? Because it was a different kind of witness that they, the early church talked about. And it was the witness of somebody that stood in the face of death and did not deny Jesus. They witnessed with their death the resurrection. Watch how I die. See if I believe what I say by belief. Now, they, didn't, they weren't lemmings. They didn't go like Jim's, Jim Jones it. They didn't drink a bunch of Kool-Aid. <laughs> so be, they weren't suicidal. They didn't want to die. And many of them escaped death many times. But when it came time, and they knew it was go time to go see Jesus, they didn't shrink from it. Paul said it. I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering. Peter said it. The time for my departure is near. They all knew. They knew. They had a sense. This is near. It's, it's time to go. Many of them lived until they were old. This guy didn't get to do that. But he found it worth it. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. And they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. This doesn't mean he, I've heard some people say, oh, he fell asleep so he didn't have to experience death. This was death. That's how the New Testament authors talked about death. For a believer, they never said you died anymore. They just said you fell asleep. Paul said it. Those that have fallen asleep in Christ. What it means is, is that death is permanent. Sleep is temporary. They believe so much in a resurrection, they refuse to word the word, use the word death anymore. Like Jesus said, if I have to be blunt with you, if I have to be plain with you, I'll tell you he died. But I, this is how I'd like to say it. Our friend Lazarus fell asleep. Believers today, you've already tasted the last taste of death. You've already tasted death when you gave your life to Jesus. The only death that counts is spiritual death. Physical death is just Stepping from one life to another is, is laying down one, just a body for another. It's taking off one coat and stepping into the next. This is, this, I'm, not, I'm not making light of going to the grave. Believe me. But I'm telling you this, that, that for Stephen, watch how he faces his last moments. Just like Jesus. He says, just like Jesus, he says, receive my spirit. Just like Jesus, he says, forgive them. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I read that and I go, yeah, they did. But apparently they didn't fully know. Like God said to Jonah, these Ninevites, they don't know their right hand from their left hand. Stephen says, please don't hold this sin against them. While rocks are crushing his skull. You think about how we pray for our enemies. When the worst thing they did was make a snide remark. When the worst thing they did was try to convince somebody that we were fools for believing the gospel. This man is being murdered right at the moment. He doesn't get a time to go chill out. I went on a retreat and I decided I should forgive you. I had a moment with Jesus at a conference and now I've let this go. No, he's in the moment of being brutally murdered. I don't hold this sin against them, Lord. Not even I forgive them, but Lord, would you forgive them? Why is he like this? Stephen, are you a superhero? Stephen, are you a, a special person that God, a shiny little light that God put on the planet that none of us could ever hope to be? Or is he just a man full of the Spirit looking at Jesus? And when you look at Jesus, you act like Jesus. When you spend all your life thinking about the devil and what he's doing, you'll act like the devil. You'll say things like, well, they did it, so it's all right for us to do it. They can do it. Turnabout is fair play. No, it's not. We're different. Don't hold this sin against them. And it goes on and it says this. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution among the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That sermon set off the great evangelism that took over the empire. That sermon began the Holy Spirit's intense work on Saul. You know, when we resist God, sometimes we react in anger. Sometimes we react extremely like Saul did, taking out our frustration on his people. Don't think you did something wrong when you tell someone in love, that Je you know, what Jesus has done for them, that, that without him there's no hope of salvation. Don't think you did something wrong if they hate you for it. Jesus said, just like they hated me, they'll hate you. And they, they hated the prophets the same way. He said, he said, rejoice when they mistreat you. Because in the same way they treated the prophets. So he says, you're in good company. Rejoice and be glad in that day, for they treated my prophets the same way. And that's the message that Stephen preaches. The things he's accused of, he turns it right around and goes, guys, you think I'm blaspheming the holy, holy place? God never was restricted to one place. And you think I'm blaspheming Moses. You guys are the ones that would have killed him. 
and you're proving my point right now. And uh, so when we read this, of course, you know, it's not just a history lesson, right? Friends, you didn't come to a, 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 um, just a Bible class where we're going to just tell you this, is, you know, this is how we should interpret it. Now you learned something about Acts 7. Let's all go home and say, well, I'm glad we learned something about Acts 7. No, we, we want God to, we want his word to penetrate our hearts and, and change us. So what do I take from this? Where am I in this? How do I see my response to God in this? It's, this chapter isn't about me. I'm not the main character. But I still want to see it and say, Lord, what are you saying to me through it? And i got to tell you, when I read it, I sometimes read it, and I see myself in this way where you see yourself as Stephen, and you go, Lord, would I be willing to look at those that hate what I stand for and hate you and give them the good gospel without holding it back, without changing it? Would I be willing to say the truth in love, even when I know the truth is going to cost me something? Would I be willing? But sometimes I read this and I don't see Stephen. I see myself in those guys that hated Stephen. Thank God I'm a new creation. Amen? Thank God you're a new creation. So that's really not, that's the old self that's been crucified with Christ. But there's always a temptation to go back to it. To feel that stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears where you resist the work of the Holy Spirit because it cause it's going to cause your whole house of cards to fall down. Why was it the religious leaders that so opposed Jesus? Because they had the most to lose. A prostitute, a tax collector, all they got is good news. Jesus is accepting them. But for a religious leader, it says some of them believed Jesus but would not confess him because they were afraid they'd lose their place. They'd lose their job. They'd lose everything. Lose their standing. Saul says later on, he says, this gospel for which I have suffered the loss of all things, it cost me everything. But he never whines about it because he gained so much more than he ever gave up. I got to know Jesus. I was saved. He says, I'm not even the same guy anymore. That guy was crucified with Christ and now it's no longer I that lives but Christ that lives in me. When you know that, there is no cost that ever compares to what you gain by knowing him. What do I have to lose? What do I have to gain? Amen? Religion will tell you that. What do you have to lose? Look at all that you have to lose. This is what the Pharisees have on their mind. What do I have to lose? Look at all these things I've built. Look at all these things I've worked for. Look at all the status I've spent my life accumulating. But the gospel tells you. All of that will perish. This moment right now that you call a lifetime goes by like this, and it'll all be gone, and you'll stand before a living God, and he'll say, what do you have? And you'll say, nothing. Nothing. Without him, I have nothing. He said, all your works will be burned up. You stand before the king. There's nothing there. These, these, these men, who these Pharisees and Sadducees, these leaders of the Sanhedrin and the council that are standing uh, in front of Stephen judging him. If they don't repent, Paul said, my prayer is for my brothers. Because he goes, I know that their problem is, is that seeking to establish their own righteousness, they will not submit to the righteousness of God, which is by faith. Someday we'll all stand before the king. And it may seem like a long time right now, but in light of eternity, it is to, like that. And if I told you right now, in 10 seconds, you're going to stand before the judge of all creation, you'd, you'd have some serious thoughts right now. In light of eternity, the next however amount of time you have before you see the king, it's going to seem like that. It's not, you don't have time to be proud. We don't have time to be stiff-necked. We don't have time to resist the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to say, well, you know what? I mean, I just, ah, that's my retirement or that's my plan or, or, or you know, I, now I have to admit to my kids, the thing I've been telling them about the Lord, I, I had this verse wrong. <laughs> Believe me, I know because I preach. Multiple times a week I preach. So, you know, when I find out I'm wrong about something, I got to consider I've told these people this. It's not going to be pleasant for me to stand in front of them and go, guys, I was wrong. But what do I value more? Do I fear them or I fear God? Do I value my reputation or do I value the integrity of God's word? Or do I value their lives? Do I love people enough to tell them the truth? 
How much do you love people? Stephen loved these people who hated him so much that he was willing to give his life. He wasn't preaching to a a crowd of people that were going to rush the altar and give their life to Jesus. He didn't have Hillsong United playing on the background and everybody come and, and bow down and weep at the altar. No, all he had was a group of people that hated him. He didn't need to waste his breath on them. He could have just said, listen, I didn't do that, guys. Let me go. Was, these guys are false witnesses. They lied about me. Ask my friends. They'll tell you. He didn't try that. He loved these guys enough, and he loved God enough to tell them the truth. How much do I love Lloyd Minster? Yeah, it's good that we love one another. Sure. How much do I love them? How much do you love your coworkers? How much do you love your family? How much do we love our fellow citizens of Canada? How much do we love one another? Do we love with the love of God? It says, you may hate, but I love. So I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you the gospel. And as, as the angel said to the apostles when they were released from prison in the last, last sermon we talked about, he said, go and preach the whole message of this life. Don't preach the part that's going to get you applause. Preach the whole thing. It's all good. It's life to those that are being saved. It's always going to smell like death to those that are perishing. But if anything, maybe it'll wake them up. Maybe it'll wake them up. What are you sparing them? Their feelings? Friends, I'm I'm thankful nobody tried to spare my feelings at the expense of my soul. Here we are. We're all equal. Because now that once pride's been crucified, we all stand saved by the blood of Jesus, made right by the grace of God and his kindness towards us. And all you got to say is you may have murdered the king of glory, but he's ready to forgive you. And I stand here right now as somebody that loves you because God loves you. God so loved you that he sent his son. That's the reality. So I know we just read the longest sermon in the book of Acts. But it was worth somebody dying for. I'd say it's worth reading reading aloud in church. And let that same spirit that was in Stephen be in us. And let the same spirit that was in the religious leaders just be put at the foot of the cross right now. Guys, I, I, I still have regularly, the Lord will expose remnants of pride that are just stuck in my own heart. Stubbornness that's stuck in my own heart. And he's so loving, he never gives up on me. Why would he ever give up on you? Never get to the place where you say, I have no pride left. It's, it's kind of pride, so it's, it's, you know, it's an oxymoron, your own. Sure, God is going to layer by layer transform you more and more into his image that's a beautiful thing never resist the holy spirit never i mean if abram can leave his own home as an old man i mean he was old by the time god told him to leave i mean depends on your definition of old but he was a grown man who had you know stuff houses land god tells him to leave are we willing to get up and leave when god says and speak when he says because he's worth it amen would you stand with me today